when I was growing up, I knew of one film director. One, I, I had heard of one female film director, Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, the initial reaction to American Psycho, you know, a lot of it was very hostile. And, um, and indeed, it was, was, I don't think, considered a success when it first came out. And now it's, you know, I'm always amazed at how, how it's been reclassified as, you know, this film that, that everybody seems to love. It's like, well, didn't everybody hate it, you know, 10 years ago? Well, it's funny because when we were writing it, um, I was writing it, my, the script was written with Guinevere Turner, who had written uh, this pioneering lesbian uh, rom romantic comedy, Go Fish, and I'd, written, and I'd made Aisha Andy Warhol. We thought, well, you know, we have the right to do this, and, and we dare anybody to come and, and tell us that we're misogynist. You know, so we actually probably were the only people who would be able to approach that with confidence, because I think that we saw that what Brett had done was a satire of, of misogyny and a, and a, criti a critique and a crazy, dark, dark black comedy. And I think that we, we, we felt that, that I, I felt that from the beginning I read the book. Yes, it's extraordinarily violent, more violent than the film, but I, I, never, I never had any doubts about what, and I think Brett would say that himself, that it was a critique. I mean, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hello. Hello. Hi. This week, the final installment of our four-part decades series. We've talked about the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now it's Kevin's time to shine. This week, he has been tasked with bringing us two movies from the aughts. I feel like Kevin is a guy who would be up for the challenge on this. Kevin, what do you got for us? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me my own week. It's about time. I think this is probably long overdue. Uh, listeners would agree. I know my mom would. Yes, so, mom, yes. I made it. Love you. Thanks for listening. So this is a tough decade. This is, you know, you're coming out of the 90s, which was, I think we covered it pretty well last week. It's a very uneven decade. When you're coming out of something as crazy as the 80s, you go into the 90s, and you're coming out of the 90s into the aughts, and everything was just sort of changing. It was we, we still had the really commercialized movies like we talked about with like Idle Hands, where you replace the Texas Chainsaw poster with a Sublime poster. Uh, so the early aughts were still like very much into commercialization. But also this decade, which, you know, Dave was quick to text me on, uh, was like a really, really big, you know, in uh, a, a big push into foreign horror. So it was such a hard pick. I put a lot of pressure on myself for this week, as I'm sure all of you did for your weeks. Uh, but I decided we'd start off with something right off the bat from the year 2000. And I'm going to go with Mary Heron's adaptation of the Bret Easton Ellis novel, American Psycho. Released in 2000, and this tells the story of our friend Patrick Bateman, played by a young Christian Bale, and essentially, even though I had the aughts, I picked a movie that takes place in the 80s. And Patrick Bateman is this cookie-cutter, cliche, New York City businessman with one of those jobs that none of us will ever know what it is or understand it. But somehow, these people made a lot of money. They continue to make a lot of money. But Patrick Bateman is just trying to fit in. Fit into Wall Street or mergers and acquisitions, whatever it is that he does. But hey, he's an absolute psychopath and he needs to kill people. So I love this one. I actually hadn't watched this in quite a long time. Trent, I don't know if you remember, but right around the time, I think that you and I started to like really get to know each other through Bodoff, Bodoff had been reading the book and he said that this is one of the only books that he ever had to stop reading. So that inspired me to read the book. And I was like, okay, Bodoff, like you silly boy, I'll read American Psycho. And I don't know if any of you guys read the book, but... It's intense. It's really hard. I had to stop quite a few times. You guys uh, the are movie both itself very, very lame. Very lame. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Trent. <laughs> I, I own it. I own it, but I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but for me, the movie held up great. You know, I watched it a lot when it first came out. I love it. You know, we see the t-shirts that are out there. I have to return some videotapes. Um, but I loved it, and I really appreciated digging more into the history of the reception of the book, to the making of the movie, to the reception of the movie, to the re- imagining of people that had horrible horrible takes on the movie and looking at their take you know when it hit its 20th anniversary uh i i like this one a lot i hope that you guys did as well what did you think i love this movie so much um and i think that you i think everyone picked very very perfectly for this entire decades thing um i thought the aughts were definitely probably the most challenging of all of them uh it was wasn't that it was a bad time in horror but there was a lot of stuff to pick from a lot of different types of stuff but i thought every week so far i thought the way we uh doled out the decades like trent with the 70s being with the 80s cats with the 90s now here we are i thought that all fit us all very very well those decades are kind of like our bread and butter but yeah you nailed it on this one this is probably my favorite horror movie of the that this decade wow um mm-hmm. wow yeah um it's just it's black comedy it's really fucking dark it's like it hits that point where they get so over the top with what they're saying and how intolerant and bigoted they are and and privileged that it's just like okay i get it anything goes and then so you just kind of sit back and you enjoy the ride. And um, damn, like I, I had to like watch this movie on my phone in private because I didn't want any <laughs> of the ladies in my life to like get lady boners watching oh. Christian Bale the whole time. I mm. could barely control myself. Perfect, a perfectly heterosexual man. And I could barely oh. hold myself back from I don't even know what. You can't have that kind of standard in the house. Oh, Did you have was, to watch it in the bathroom? I was sweating this whole time. He was amazing. Uh, he he acts great. Um, and when, when he's working out, he's exercising to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was like, that is so fucking Kevin. That is Kevin. That is Kevin. Because you're always like, you watch movies on the treadmill. Um, yeah. And, yeah. It's so not, I, it's, I definitely. It's not uh, not untrue. Uh, so yeah, that reminded me of you too. Um, my my favorite part is the, the, the part in the bathroom where he's about to strangle the guy with the black gloves and then the guy's like into it and he's so homophobic <laughs> that he goes over to the sink. He doesn't strangle him anymore. He doesn't want to kill him. He's just ruined everything, which happens a few different times in the movie. Uh, like, oh, everything's ruined now. I wanted everything perfect. He has this like uh, the status OCD. But he goes over after the guy uh, like thinks he's coming on to him by choking him with the black leather gloves. He goes over to the sink and he washes the gloves in the yeah. sink. He doesn't <laughs> wash his hands. He washes the black gloves, like the murder gloves. Like now they're tainted. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the, uh, I think the the aughts offered us kind of the the first taste of a, a reemergence i would say since the 60s and 70s of an elevated horror um even if it was black comedy um this is like a super super smart movie the dialogue is the best thing about the movie um it's it's perfect i love it um trent I was so glad to have a chance to revisit this movie. I hadn't seen this since the first time, like right after it came out on DVD. Wow. Really? Yeah, I saw it the one time, and all I remembered was pretty good, because I was a big (laughs) fan of the book. Um, I didn't have to stop or anything. just a book. Um, (laughs) Sorry, tough guy. It's a very tall order. And and Brett Easton Ellis has said as much. Like he he was very skeptical, um, so I was skeptical going in the first time, and I thought like ah pretty good, and then I never thought about it again after that. So I was psyched to see it now. Uh, twenty years later, it had its twenty uh, its twentieth uh, anniversary uh, last year of the release. So there's actually a lot of stuff out there now about the making of this movie, which was really fun too. But um, I thought now, in hindsight, this is kind of a like minor classic. I absolutely love this movie. This major. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really feels like when you're watching it, and this is borne out when you when you find out how this movie was made and how it came to be, which it had a, a tortured development history. It went through a lot of the development hell and to to land in the hands of uh, the director uh, Mary Heron and her co-screenwriter Guinevere Turner and uh, um, Christian Bale. The the three principles when you're watching the movie, it really feels like they all got it in the exact same way, and they're all three are just like on the same page the whole time. You know, Mary Turner, uh, excuse me, Mary Heron got the humor in this. They all got that this was a black comedy. That was something that it's taken a long time, I guess, for people to understand about the, you know, the book was much maligned and even the movie was kind of maligned at the time because it was still very fresh. Um, And it's funny, like seeing people back in the day talk about the violence in the movie. If you've read the book, this is not violence. This is this is this yeah, is like yes. My Little Pony. There's no violence, and I was like, "Where's the violence?" I thought this was hyper violent. Um, nothing, the child's play compared to a lot of the stuff that we watch now. Um, but what elevates it, like Dave said, is the dialogue. The whole entire movie is quotable from beginning to end, and I, I really feel like they bit off exactly the right part of this to to try to adapt into a film. You, you, there's really no way you could replicate the novel and that's always my attitude with these adaptations you can't go in thinking that you're going to have the same experience that you had reading a book i mean you're not going to have that it's like like i'm going to do a an album adaptation of american psycho i mean it's not going to be the same thing you have to find some way to anchor it and this movie i I forgot how funny it was this really Mm -hmm. anchored in the essential comedy of the book the very very dark comedy uh and christian bale absolutely blew my blew me away it's so funny to to hear him talk about now that he based his version of Patrick Bateman in part on Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, of he, course. He had seen him like on talk shows and thought like this is this is the guy I want to model. Yeah. If you watch it thinking that he's being Tom Cruise, it's like oh my god, so that, so that good. and Nicol- that and Nicolas Cage and Vampire's Kiss. Yes. Okay. That's right. I was trying to remember the other. Yeah. So this is one that I, this is a rental right now. Um, I, once I had this rented and I saw it and I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. I didn't remember how brilliant this was or I didn't appreciate it at the time. I watched this like a couple more times after mm-hmm. that. Really got into this. Super, super fun. I'm curious what Kat thought of this. Oh, man. Oh, are you kidding me? Whew. This movie still slaps. Forget um, about it. Forget about it. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> um, I've seen it so many times because it was like one of those like, oh, I'm edgy. I'm an edgy teenager. I'm going to watch American <laughs> Psycho. You know, I'd fucking watch it all the time. Um, I still love watching it. It's still very, I mean, it's still pretty fucked up. Still makes you wonder if everything in it that he does is his own delusion or if anything he does is even real. Christian Bale. <sighs> Just I'm getting sweaty just thinking about it. He's so good in this movie. Um, he's just so good at being this character. Anytime he has a voiceover and is narrating his actions, it's just so perfect. I am simply not there. Like that part, it's like chills. Yeah. I'm like, fuck yeah. Um, I might be oddly in love with Patrick Bateman just because <laughs> of Christian Bale's portrayal, which... I don't know what that says about me, but... Um, Nothing good. I nominate him, I think, You'll for... You'll die in the first day. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll die happily. <laughs> um, I definitely nominate him for Daddy of the Year, I think, oh, for the wow. podcast. Oh, I, don't wanna, I don't know who oh, else is in the God. running, but he's definitely my number one pick. Wow. Um, also, he doesn't care for anti-Semitic remarks, which I think <laughs> that's, that's a plus, only, you know? That's, that's <laughs> the only good That was yeah. so smart. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, to do that, yeah. they, uh, just cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. <laughs> like You're like, oh yeah, I'm team Bateman now, like right off the bat. Um, also, dat butt, I'd like to talk about that for a second. That was the Master second Bateman. best part to the, um, the dislike of anti-Semitic remarks. Um, but hot psychopaths aside, uh, all the other acting in the movie is great. And it's honestly just such a beautiful film visually. Uh, the contrast of the bright red blood to all the clean, you know, white apartments and all those scenes is just so striking. I just love it. Um, obviously we can't not talk about the magical soundtrack to the movie. Um, it seems like the only thing that Bateman really is passionate about or 
cares about at all is music. So when he gets to talking about it, it's very, very entertaining for sure. Um, I mean, the Huey Lewis and the News murder scene is obviously iconic. And upon my last watch, I found myself um, cackling during the scene. Um, I just thought it was very, very funny. And the person that I was watching it with um, kind of like poked their head like around the corner. They were like in the other room and they knew exactly what scene was happening. And they're like, well, you're, oh, yeah, you think this is a, a really funny part, huh? I'm like, yeah, it's hilarious. It so I, I, they said that they, uh, they also thought it was funny. I don't know if they were placating me, but hopefully um, they're not going to break up with me. Um, but <laughs> I also feel like I related to his random serial killer facts that he would just uh, spurt out every once in a while, like Ed Gein and yes. Ted Bundy. That seemed yes. like a very me and Kevin situation <laughs> that happened. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, but obviously, yeah, very into this film. So happy to watch it. Um, I couldn't say anything but Kat, terrible. But he, Kat, he had one fatal flaw what? with his Ed Gein quote. What was it? When he said, you know, when he said, uh, you know, Ed Gein said, you know, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I, I think of two things. You know, one is like, I wonder what, you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to take her out and, you know, hold her and treat her right or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think is I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. That was not Ed Gein. That was actually Ed Kemper. Uh, oh, I, you know, shit. I was, I was wondering about that because I can't imagine that Ed Gein would say the first part. Maybe the second part, but... Yeah, unless it was about I don't his think mom. Ed, I don't think Ed Gein ever strung together that many words yeah. in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's more well, of a grunt. Ed Gein, when he was like, he says, I ate her brains. I ate some of their brains. <gasps> yeah. yeah. That yeah. part yeah. is like yeah. very Ed Gein. And, and you don't see all the violence. Like you see some violence, mm-hmm. but it's not like totally, you don't know everything he's doing and he's kind of a sketch ball. And uh, you get the feeling that maybe he kind of like blacks out a little bit or something. And, and you kind of feel like that as a, as a viewer. So when he's calling his lawyer and listing off all the stuff he's done, uh, you realize that there's even more to it yeah. than he was like cooking their brains and everything. And I thought that yeah. was... Yeah, yeah. I even tried was, to cook a little. Got a little darker yeah. at that point. Yeah, and there was even that moment, like the first murder that actually happens in the movie, you don't even see. Like you just see him bringing the sheets right. to the cleaner and he's like yelling at these people about trying to get the blood out of his like Egyptian cotton or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I love when the guy's like, he's like notices the, he's dragging the body out to the car. And putting it in the car with a big trail of blood behind it. Blood, and yeah. He sees someone he knows, and the guy's like, "Oh my god, where did you get that overnight bag?" You <laughs> <laughs> think he's gonna be like, "Is that a body in there?" And he's just like obsessed with the bag. That's like the whole point of the movie. Is you know, yes, like there's the comedy, there's the whole thing with Christian Bale obviously being a psycho. There's the whole thing with like how much of this is in his mind and how much are we seeing that's real, but like to me one of the greatest parts of the movie is just this like social status in like wasteful existence of all these people in New York City that I know the Huey Lewis scene is probably the most famous in the movie to me the one that has always stuck with me is the business card scene oh yeah that pretty much sums up the movie in like three minutes and I've just never seen anything like it like just you know, when we were talking about From Dust Till Dawn, we talked about when the narrative and your point of view goes to Quentin Tarantino and they kind of mess with the audio a little bit so you know you're in the mind of of uh, Richie and like really powerful. But there's something about this scene. Again, the voiceover, you know, his demeanor, like the change, every everybody else is acting in the room. Like to Kat's point, this is a pretty star-studded cast. For we need to call out an independent production. Yeah. With a seven million dollar budget. Yeah. But that entire scene, I think Trent, you had sent me like one of the oral histories. I either saw it there or maybe in some of the interviews. Like all the actors were watching Christian Bale and they did multiple takes of of the business card scene where essentially Christian Bale shows up, he's in the boardroom, busts out like a new business card, you know, and there's one of many like funny descriptions that they have in the movie that that sort of correlate to horror where he's like, you know, the color's bone. Um, (laughs) Talking about his business card, but then, you know, Paul Allen, Jared Leto, a young young and very annoying Jared Leto shows up, you know, and you know, everybody else is like, oh, like, what's his card? Because he throws a card out. And it's just this incredible scene. But the actors eventually, the other actors in the scene went to, to Mary Heron. 
And they were like, every time we do the scene, Christian Bale starts sweating at the exact same time. I saw that. Oh my like, God. It's so, it's so crazy. Like, <laughs> it is. And, and that, that scene has always stuck with me Like when it comes to like status. And like we're all in multiple situations where we definitely aren't the coolest person in the room, aren't the smartest person in the room. We know what it feels like to be like, I need to keep up with whatever situation I'm in. But that scene, like, it, it stuck in my soul with how powerful it was. Yeah, that, that's an all-time classic scene, that business card scene where they're all kind of jockeying for who has the best business card. That's one of the, actually, one of the scenes from the novel that stuck with me more than any of the graphic gore scenes. That cre- that business card scene is so defining, and there are so many of those. I, I love that whole, the whole milieu that's being sort of satirized here where they need to have reservations at a hot place every night. That's they're yeah. forever. They're, like one all guy these guys, says, yeah, I'm not even hungry. I just want a yeah, reservation. I just yeah. need a reservation yeah. <laughs> and it has to be somewhere happening. They're like unhappy if they get to a place and it's not busy. I loved, mm-hmm. I loved when, uh, uh, Paul Allen is, is busting Bateman's balls. He thinks he's someone else, of course, but it's like real happening place here. Uh, real, real hot spot. You know, like he's mad that they're not yeah. bustling. Like everyone has Halberstrom. to have reservations, and it has to be at a place that it's hard to get reservations. Everyone is like, you know, all over people's glasses. You know, it's just this constant like sheen of kind of you know who who's on top in every single situation. And the voiceover narration really helps that. It's it's tough to do sometimes in movies like voiceovers can make or break. And I think because so much of the novel is first person, there's really no way around that. Like you have to have that in there. And I thought that this movie does just the right amount. It doesn't overdo the narration. You have to do it. But it's it's just so perfect, and, and Bale nails it, like you said. Um, yeah, so, so good. I also loved it as far as the the surface, um, the vapid sort of nature of, of all of their ambitions, like the way that everybody is always mistaking people for other people, including mm-hmm. Bateman. Yeah. Yes. You never like, wait, yeah. wait, is that Paul Allen? No, that's, you know, someone else. Like, they it, know the names, but they don't know the people. Yeah, there's no, that's not him. He's on the other side. Is that correct? Yeah, from no, paperwork or like what Bateman. accounts they're working on. Like, yeah, yeah, right. It's just, it's so good. And, and that's, um, that's all through like Ellis's other books too. He kind of always does this kind of thing of these, these relationships that are so shallow that you don't even really know who anyone is, and it plays on that so well with Bateman, too. Let's get into the cast, because we, we know that Christian Bale plays Star-studded. Patrick Bateman. I never knew I forgot. that Christian Bale was Welsh. Oh, right, right. I, I didn't, didn't know that. And so, apparently, I, I mean, I think everything I've seen Bale in, has, he's had an American accent, which is, which is pretty crazy. But I guess during the entire making of the movie, he was method acting. So, like, he would go to dinner, uh, even pre-filming, he would go to dinner with, like, Mary Heron and some of the people. that uh, You know, I think even Easton Ellis was there. And he was in Patrick Bateman character, dressed in the suit, had the hair done. Apparently, he had his teeth fixed for this. And the entire time, he would only speak in his American accent. So, at the rap party... Everybody was totally wigged out when he finally broke character and started speaking in his Welsh accent. You hate method uh, he, actors. Yeah, What's you that? really do. You hate method actors. You a few episodes ago, you were like, "No, I, I, I." Well, and even if you read some of the oral history stuff, like even the people at dinner, like Mary Heron, Easton Ellis, like even they were annoyed. Even they were just like, "Okay, can you cut it out?" <laughs> so yeah, it's annoying. Um, the only likable character is a very young Chloe Savini. She's literally the only likable character in this entire film. She plays Patrick Bateman's receptionist, Jean. And Savini was like 19. She had just come off the movie Kids. So you want to talk about starting your career intensely? Try doing Kids and then American Psycho. I love Chloe Savini. Is it Savini? Like Tom Savini? Sevigny. Oh, is it Sevigny? I don't know. I, I was going to ask you guys how. I don't know I how to pronounce Chloe Sevigny. Oh, I, I always said Chloe Sevigny. Sevigny? Sevigny. What did you say, Kat? I, uh, My friend went to high school. I just said Nobody knows. Craig Solo went to high school. went to high school with her? I've been watching Craig her in movies for 20 years. No idea. Oh, wait. Craig Solo went to high school with her. Really? Yeah. Well, he says that about a lot of people, though. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would take that. Um, you also just have, you know, just a guy named Willem Dafoe show up as a detective. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Paul Allen. Uh, Jared Leto, like I said. Uh, Josh Lucas and... Uh, Justin Theroux. Justin Theroux. Mm. What's that? Justin Theroux. 
Justin Thoreau and, and Matt Ross kind of play like the three other guys that he always seems to be with. And like, I'm sorry, like Justin Thoreau is like the most famous person that I never know who he is. I never recognize him. I have no idea. Like I would recognize Matt Ross and Josh Lucas like way more. But it's funny. And I think again, Trent, in the, some of the, the articles, the oral histories for the 20, 20th anniversary, these guys kept talking during filming and saying Christian Bale was like basically the worst actor they'd ever worked with. They were like, this guy is horrible. And it wasn't until they saw the completed movie, they were like, oh shit, no, he's the real deal. That's pretty awesome. Um, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here. My favorite character. Okay. Ready? Somebody guess. Uh, Reese Witherspoon. You haven't mentioned her yet. No. Uh, Samantha Mathis as Courtney. Oh. Wow. One of, my, one of my favorite movies of all time is a little number called Pump Up the Volume. Mm, What's okay. that? Uh, you never another, seen Pump oh, Up the Volume? Another Christian. Oh. Another Christian. What? Yeah, Christian yeah. Slater. Oh, okay. Slater. Um, but this is a crazy cast for an indie film that had so much production hell, so many people changing roles. Um, like Trent, I'm sure you you know. I'll let you get into that. But you know, for what they pulled off for seven million at the time, it made 34 million, which I think was really good. You know, for the year 2000, and. I just, I, I really can't believe like how everybody kind of fit into their role. Like sometimes you have a really great movie like this and there's like one character that you're like, eh, for me, it would almost be Reese Witherspoon Trent. Like not my favorite character, possibly like my least favorite, but there's just some things that she does, particularly during like the breakup scene with her great and Patrick scene. Bateman. I love that, that scene. If you've watched the movie enough time, it's so nuanced and she's so good and subtle and really is diving into this like class role of like we are literally just about getting reservations at Dorcia, telling people we're going to get married. Not all of it is performative. None of none of it has any substance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just can't believe what Mary Harron pulled off with with so much studio intervention, no money, and a pretty pretty uh, good cast. Did you guys hear that? Um, uh, lead actor he stopped going to church uh to do this role because it was such a who christian bale stopped going to church <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> god damn it <laughs> <laughs> he so much oh, thanks you boy. you outlanded that perfect thank you trent <laughs> uh you know i i wanted to talk a little bit about uh, spoilery things. I mean, it's American Psycho. I mean, these are decades. This is there's not the much past. to spoil here. We know who done it once again. <laughs> to me, yeah. uh, that it's like it's almost like a come true where all of a sudden you rethink the whole movie uh, at the ending where you just realize that like even when a douchebag like this tries and to turn himself in, he has such a cushion and everyone is so numb to people with money and power that he can't even get caught. He can't even turn himself in. And I thought that there was going to be some sort of like Willem Dafoe showdown mm -hmm. or something because their rapport is really good. I thought that that dynamic kind of uh, didn't go anywhere. That's like my only criticism of it. Uh, I would have liked to seen some like really crazy Willem Dafoe I, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you there because I love the way that they play it so subtle where you're like, does Defoe know? Mm -hmm. Does Defoe not care? Impossible Is to he tell. dipshit? Yeah. Like, it really adds to that ambiguity, Dave, that you're talking about at the end. Like, if there was some sort of showdown, then we wouldn't be debating what I think we're all about to debate, which is what was real and what was not. I think it was all, I think it was all real. Uh, it was just disorienting. That's what uh, I, I mean, you can't blow up a cop car with a handgun. Oh, that is I, true. He hit the gas tank. Go ahead. No, I just, <laughs> I, I thought it was all real until it got to the ATM, and then the ATM was like, feed me a stray cat. And then Clearly he's trying not real. To put, and then in that moment, I was like, <laughs> right. oh, maybe he is imagining some things. I think it, it's all as real and not real as the whole world that the characters are inhabiting. I mean, is that Halberstrand? Is that Carruthers? Is that Paul Allen? Is that... No, that's not... That's not Bateman. He's such a loser. Oh, my God. I also love that. Like, every time 
Bateman does that. get like misnamed. He's not recognized. People comment like, <laughs> Bateman, what a chump. You know, as, as hard, as cool as he's trying to be killing people, he's still just like a dork. So I think all of that, <laughs> that all fits together. I don't think that there's an answer like how much is real and how much isn't real. Uh, I mean, a little of both would be my opinion. And that is part of the story is how unreal this whole world is and how privileged he is. Who who would know if he did half of this stuff that he does? I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it to me. I mean, it I is the eighties. Like it's it's pre like hardcore CSI. Yeah. Uh, it's pre you know DNA and things like that. But I don't know. I mean, you can analyze the ending for days. Obviously, the the author, the the movie makers, they've come out in in more recent years and definitely been a little more definitive about what what the whole point is and what's real and what isn't. But there's there's two main camps. Like one is it's imaginary. You know, the movie is just showing Bateman's fantasies. Um, you know, they didn't go as smooth, maybe, as he is portraying them or the movie's portraying them. Like, there's a particular chainsaw kill that is, like, one of the least possible, you know, <laughs> things. You know, it's 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 a half-court shot in a serial killer movie. <laughs> it is um, a half-court shot. Yeah, like, not, not only, I just want to point out, not only does Bateman at one point work out to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on his TV, they reenact the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre basically in the movie. Yeah, but you yes. get to see Dat Butt the whole time. <laughs> naked. <laughs> naked. The chainsaw covered in no, blood. No, he's With naked wearing tennis shoes. not fall in love? Oh, right? Naked wearing tennis shoes. Yes. So there's the whole, like, it's imaginary. Then there's the whole, it's real. And like you were just saying, Trent, it's just showing how bad people really don't know each other or they're trying so hard to fit in that everyone's just a clone. You know, like maybe like with the added twist that like he killed people, but maybe not Paul Allen. Like maybe that was a fantasy and like Willem Dafoe's behavior and his lawyer's behavior seems to back this up. Here's here's a third one that I've yet to read about, but I'm going to present it right now. Mm. Woo, hot take. Early early in the movie, when you meet Reese Witherspoon, they're in a car, she's asking him about work or something, and she says your dad owns the company. Right. Like, you can do whatever you want. Yes. That is never brought up again, even though you have no fucking idea how this guy has the job he has. In the end, when he goes to Paul Allen's apartment, basically trying to be like, okay, I've lost my shit. This is like post-insane night where he's blowing up cop cars and feeding cats to ATMs and shit. He goes back to Paul Allen's apartment. I started to think, did his dad cover this up? Like, who is his dad? Right. You never know. Right. His Big dad owns the company. Guy. Okay. Right. All of a sudden, all this right. apartment's, like, painted over and, and being shown. The lawyer's acting like, I don't know who you are. And, like, even watching the lawyer's demeanor. Yes. Yeah. That's a good- You're so I rich, like that. you can't even turn yourself, your, yourself exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, the ultimate, it's the ultimate show of privilege. See, I don't think that was as much uh, your fresh new take and- third scenario as much as kind of what I said. Oh, you think he's just rewording your take and presenting it as his own? Well, yeah, I was saying that, that he was so affluent, uh, he was untouchable at the end. It didn't matter how... But I didn't know the no, thing I about mean, daddy. I think, the daddy I think thing, though, is a, is a development. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, he's that's saying like, like the in a world one, where like, his dad actually actively covered stuff up, which he could have done. I don't know. I wish I talked about Phil Collins and Whitney Houston with as much passion as Patrick Bateman did. Uh, I want me someone too. like that to listen to my music. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then kill you. And tell me about it. Yeah, they could kill me after. If he if he just was wearing tennis shoes and covered in blood <laughs> and he wanted to review my new album, I would be like, let's go. Uh, Hue Huey Lewis himself, he, he is interviewed in one of those oral histories that you can find if you just search um, oral history American Psycho there were a couple last year where they talked to almost everyone and one of them actually talks to Huey Lewis and he actually says yeah I thought it was really funny you know and uh, I mean I thought he kind of got it right re regarding <laughs> the music of Huey Lewis which of yeah, course he and did. that's like there's two things to that like one a lot of the dialogue that you guys keep mentioning like they took it directly from Easton Ellis's book yeah yeah so like great great call by Mary Heron and good writing by you gotta Easton have that Ellis. in there yeah Except the Huey thing was not it, her and, and Guinevere Turner. Uh, that it you was. It was just in a different. It, it was. It just was in a different spot. It wasn't. 
it wasn't in that spot in front of the killing of Paul Allen. It was in a different, it was like in a later chapter of the book. That's what they changed. And there's also like this whole controversy about Huey Lewis was a dick and heard about how violent the movie was. So he wouldn't let the song be on the official soundtrack. Yeah, his manager didn't think the soundtrack would be a hit or something and just didn't want the song on there for, for reasons like that. It was nothing to do with the content of the movie. They'd already agreed nothing, to have it Nothing, no. In fact, years later, Huey Lewis would parody the entire scene with Weird Al on Funny or Die, uh, which you can check out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact that uh, this has an absolutely one of those one of those classic like Hollywood deals where everybody that we've ever talked about was once attached to this movie. Yeah. So this this book came out. Alice wrote this when he was 27 years old, which is pretty impressive. And it came out in 91. People were very mad. There was lots of bands. You can read about it anywhere. Um, and then the rights were purchased in 92. And originally Cronenberg, David Cronenberg, was in talks to make this movie. And it went to Heron. And she wanted bail. Then Lionsgate got involved. They replaced Heron with Oliver Stone and replaced Christian Bale with a fresh off Titanic Leonardo DiCaprio. And everybody was Heron. Well, I'm sorry. They replaced Bale with DiCaprio and Heron said no. And they booted her and brought in Oliver Stone. Um, So eventually Leo DiCaprio apparently was talked out of doing this um, by a woman in the industry who would go on to marry Christian Bale's dad. So that's fun. Those must have been fun uh, family get-togethers. Mm. And DiCaprio dropped off. They went back to bail, and we got the movie that we got made. Um, but even before David Cronenberg, the first director they were talking about making this movie with was fucking Stuart Gordon. Oh, yeah, right. Ooh. Reanimator. Yeah, right. Yes. I think but that's part of like, the it's miracle. It's funny to like, watch. Like, you, like, I, I think it was you, Trent, that said it. Like They nailed it. Like You caught... You caught lightning in a bottle with Bale as an actor, Heron as a director and writer, and Guinevere Turner as her writing partner. Like, you caught it. You had the right three people. And it's just classic Hollywood or classic music industry where it's like, well, but what if we did this? And what if we brought this person in? We might sell some more tickets. Or what? I'm so happy it got back to the original team that was pouring their heart and soul into this and wanted this. I think that's why we got such a good movie. I think that's part of what's so special about it is that it did go through so many hands and it had been rewritten a few times too. I think one of the things that is so great about it is that it did end up back with Mary Heron who had insisted on bail, would not hear anything else. I I try to think about like, what if Oliver Stone had made this with Leonardo DiCaprio? As Heron has Mm -hmm. said, like she just knew that at that point they would want to make the character more sympathetic and at that point they were going to give they were going to give uh, DiCaprio like $20 million just himself to do the movie. So at that point now his agent is involved in the screenplay and like the, the studio now has all this money on the line and we have one of the biggest stars and that was why she didn't want to do it. So to think about how many people this got kicked back and forth between and then to finally end up back with the people who were really passionate about it. There are stories about Christian Bale calling other actors like Ewan McGregor and telling them not to, begging them not to take the role to walk away from because he was so <laughs> Yeah, I love bent. that story. He never gave up on doing it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just an example of like real true passion shining through and and kind of winning winning out and like getting one by the studio system and making what now is like totally a classic. All right, so for my second pick for my week, let me make it clear, this is my week. Yeah, we know. I went very much in the opposite direction because I needed to find something foreign horror, but what I realized going back through all of the Speak All Evil episodes, I've picked a whole bunch of foreign horror movies from this decade. I would have probably instinctively gone to my first pick ever on the show, Audition. Mm. But fortunately, just doing some due diligence... I landed on 2007's The Orphanage. This is J.A. Bayona's directorial debut. This is a Guillermo del Toro produced or presented by, as he would go on to do many more films. And this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time, I think. This would, in terms of the sub-genre, 
of sort of a supernatural horror movie, this is going to be in my top 10 easily. So essentially what you have is Laura, our main character, who was a child and spent time at an orphanage for disabled kids, which is a little unclear to me because she doesn't seem to be disabled. She was eventually adopted, and now in present day she's married with an adopted son of her own. And she has gone and purchased the old orphanage that she grew up in, and she wants to reopen it and run it herself for disabled children. Almost immediately after she does this, her son Simone finds an imaginary friend. He goes missing, and Laura, while searching for and grieving her missing child, also begins experiencing paranormal events and some real-life discoveries about the orphanage she thought she knew as a child. Uh, Heartbreaker, totally different from American Psycho. Uh, Definitely not leaving on a great note this week, and I apologize for making you guys watch this movie, but I also (laughs) love the fact that you had to watch this movie. Uh, This one, we can talk about it. Everybody knows that this debuted at at Cannes and got a 10-minute standing ovation the first time it was ever screened. It deserved it. I want to stand up every time I watch it and give it a 10-minute standing ovation. I just ain't got that kind of time. Uh, Can't watch this movie without crying. Realize that even describing the ending to it, as I texted you guys, I can't even describe the ending to somebody without getting choked up. But in terms of a directorial debut, a lot of people that worked on this movie, it was their first feature film. You know, you want to talk about set building, atmosphere, heartfelt performances from a great cast and just twist after twist after twist that could wear you out like like a Shyamalan movie. Nope, they all fit together perfectly. Horror, yes. Scary, maybe. Um, but in terms of just evil and really messed up situations, I think that this movie nails it and is honestly kind of like Dave said, uh, the aughts had a lot to offer, some really bad and some really good. I think this one was Del Toro had already sort of launched Spanish-speaking films into the mainstream. I think this one was just a brilliant way to like really wake the world up that, you know what, good movie makers are all over the world. And guess what? Genre filmmakers in terms of horror, uh, the foreign market at the time was way ahead of the American market, in my opinion. Um, what did you guys think? Um, this one was just a major bummer. I was expecting some like really terrifying ghost shit. Um, and then you find out about all this backstory of the actual orphanage. And it's just fucking sad, man. Like the sack mask, scarecrow looking thing sets you up to be like, nah, fuck this little ghost boy. I'm all set. But then you find out why he wears this stupid little sack, and it's the most heartbreaking thing ever. Very much a Jason Voorhees moment. Mm, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, especially I with the that. mother's reaction to that whole thing. Um, she definitely goes crazy pants and creates a whole mess of trouble that you find out about later. That's a real shocker for sure. At least it was for me. Did not see some things coming. Did not see many twists and or turns that we saw in this film. Um, then you've got the main character mom who's bought this old orphanage and her, you see her relationship with her son who they keep the truth about his like being adopted and being sick from, which I thought was kind of fucked up, but it's not the most fucked up thing about this movie. Um, I guess it's a good thing he had a little ghost friend to tell him all about his old little history or whatever the fuck. Um, then when he goes missing and you're trying to figure out if he was ghost snapped or what was really happening <laughs> And then once the truth is revealed, it was just a real rough time, I think, for everyone watching the movie, a.k.a. me. Um, I thought the ending was kind of sweet, but heartbreaking. Yes, sure. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, I didn't cry at this one. I thought when you guys, when Kevin was telling me about all the tears that he shed, Short trip. I was like, whew, you know, maybe I'm going to weep, but... Um, I was watching it on an airplane and I'd taken a lot of Valium. So maybe that's why I didn't cry at it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was a good movie. I liked it, but it was just not, it was just, it was just a very bummer of a heartbreaking, sad little, little orphan film. I had never seen this movie before. Wow. No wow. way, Trent. 
Yeah. Um, the reason I had never seen this is because I don't love ghost story movies that much. Mm. I would put the, the ghost stories are down near the bottom of my subgenre list because I, you know, ghosts are just like not scary. Like nobody in the history of humankind has ever been harmed by a ghost and Whoa. they're not real. So like, it's kind of hard to make a scary ghost movie, I feel like. And if you do, my hat's off. This might be my favorite ghost movie of all time. I'm, oh, wow. I'm, I'm not going to say for sure, but I would be hard pressed to think of a better ghost story than The Orphanage. The Others. I was just thinking The I others. haven't seen The Others either for the same reason. We didn't watch The Others yet? <laughs> no. Oh, shit. No. I no. avoid these these type of like, it's like, oh, a, a goth uh, a goth ghost story uh, hey. presented by, but not directed by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> he does kind of this, when he gets into the fantasy stuff, I'm like, eh. So that's one of the reasons I never saw it. Man, this, this is as skillful, as well done, as scary, and as poignant a ghost story as you could do. Um, I saw the Changeling recently, old one with yes. George C. Scott, which is pretty good. Um, I mean, this is in that tradition and and better, in in my opinion. Um, the way that this, I think, the one thing that this movie does better than most is the way that it ties every single thing that happens throughout this movie, and it's paced brilliantly. I feel like it kind of bops along for for the kind of story that it is. The way that it's paced really keep it kept me in it. And it was kind of scary. Like it, it made it made that idea scary. And the way that every single twist and turn, Kevin, you mentioned like there's so many twists in this movie, um, but they all resolve. They all come together. That's the other thing that I don't like about a lot of the ghost stories is what happens a lot of times, they set up a bunch of stuff and they have all these different things going on, these parts of the story. And then at the end, it's like, oh, it has to end somehow. I don't know. It's a ghost. Who cares? Just saying, you know, just whatever can happen doesn't really matter how can you question the spirit world you know and it's like a cop out a lot of times but this movie every single thing that the movie set up through the whole way every little side plot every little diversion like everything wrapped up in a way that most importantly was consistent within the internal logic of the movie it didn't go outside the boundaries that it set it didn't just make up some dumb stuff at the end it was consistent within itself. And that's, you know, that's what I ask. So I was really happy to see this. I, I saw it a couple times. Um, really, really good. Great pick, Kevin. Can I have a second movie, please? <laughs> <clears throat> I, I love orphan movies. I come from a generation that, uh, like, listened to Nirvana and wish we were orphans. <laughs> what? <laughs> hey, wait. Look but, at my shirt. Oh. Yes, yeah, see? Exactly. Um, well, I love my parents, but I didn't want them around holding me down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I agree uh, with Kat. I was going to bring up the Friday the Thirteenth thing, especially when she puts on her whole the the garb from the orphanage, and she gets all dressed up. It's like the same kind of like doppelganger trick that uh you know the final girl does at the end of uh part two mm -hmm. and then it i also was going to bring up the changeling and i didn't know why i think it was just the, the it's a good ghost story the pace of the scares and the way they set them up and the and the way they use the house i think reminded me of the changeling um and i you know i think the guillermo del toro presents stuff is great like not all these guys who I don't know what they do. They they okay it or they curate it or they he put some put money up, behind it. Money, but I think is well, well, the ones I mean, that Guillermo well, del Toro does are good. He uh, puts up don't money. Don't be afraid of the dark was another one, um, and I I think that he was that was like based on like an old short story or something. But um, yeah, I thought I think the stuff that is presented by I, I kind of trust Guillermo del Toro, and I do feel like he just takes their movie and probably puts a desaturation filter on them because all his <laughs> shit looks the same. It's just like you, it's all Definitely. unsaturated. Yes. Uh, and it has that it's like a sepia tone. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love this movie. I definitely loved it more the first time when I was discovering this story play out the, for the first time. Uh, I'm jealous of Trent uh, seeing it as a virgin because I'd seen this movie many times um, 
but uh, the second time I found it, to, I, I didn't realize how infrequent the scares were. Mm-hmm. I, I remembered it being much more scary because the images that are scary and the, the moments that are scary are either very suspenseful or like really disturbing because like that's one of the greatest scary masks ever. Ugh. I think mm. the dolls were the scariest part for me because you know I you know I hate you know I hate a scary doll. <laughs> dolls you can't hurt it. you. Well, they can if they come alive and murder you in the night. Did that ever happen when you had dolls? Here's a, did I ever tell you about my dolls? No, please. Okay, no. so Go. I was a scared child. I had lots of anxiety. And so I had a bunch of beanie babies and like stuffed animals. And I, every night I would rotate them around sure. so that some would be in the front and some would be in you the see back. See if they move. Yeah, I did well, that. Well, no, no. I didn't want the ones in the back to get mad at me. Um, oh, and so sure. I would move them to the front and then like do a rotation because I thought they would murder me in the night. <laughs> yeah. So well, yeah. Um, don't know why. But not that, a big that, doll that fan. That's perfectly reasonable. Sure. I used yeah. to set mine when I was really little and I had like all the stuffed animals. Mm-hmm. I used to set them in a certain way so that I would be able to see if they moved, you know, like do certain oh, things with them, set them up so that if they did come alive and move, you know, during the night, mm-hmm. then they would not be able to get back to this exact formation that I had them. Yeah, no, I assumed they- never they, did, by yeah, the way. I assumed they were all alive and plotting my demise. So I had to uh, <laughs> preemptively make sure they didn't get mad at me. I like really consumerism uh, driven toys. They're like, I'm not afraid of He Man. He's not going to hurt me. Hasbro. <laughs> Hasbro, bro. G.I. <laughs> Joe. Yeah, G.I. Joe, exactly. Oh, Snake Eyes is a little scary. <laughs> Snake Eyes looked like. Did you see Kanye West at, and Kim Kardashian at the Met Gala? That was Snake Eyes, yeah. That's Snake Eyes, that yeah. That was Snake Eyes. Is that like the Cobra so, Commander? Yeah. Okay. No. So it was it a commit? No, that was the G.I. Joe Ninja with Snake Eyes. But oh. continue. Different podcast. Let's Kevin, please. Uh yeah. So you're talking about Trent, like the pacing and all of this. And one of the things that I found incredible is that this is a first time screenwriter. Right. So this movie was written by Sergio Sanchez and he wrote it in nineteen ninety six. And it's interesting, just like Easton Ellis's American Psycho book took over a decade to get made into a movie. The script took over a decade to finally get made into a movie. And it's it's one of those things where you guys mentioned the changeling, which I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't think about. Um, but I did think about uh, a bunch of movies and then reading about it, I was pleasantly surprised that this is what Sanchez has admitted to doing, uh, along with a few that I did not get. And I think one of them, the last one that I will name is the one that really gets me choked up about the ending. So he cited Poltergeist, which I definitely got those vibes off Aurora and her tech Enrique, like super Poltergeist moment in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the Omen, uh, for sure. The like, Omen, big Bagmas time. Baby, yeah. and there's some other. Rosemary's Baby, I think Benigna. The character yeah. Benigna is so key to this movie. And like you said, Trent, like he throws so much into the pot and it's incredible that he actually bakes a cake with it all yes yeah. and doesn't like leave any of the ingredients yeah. out or put too many in so when you take your bite you're like ah that's just too much cilantro or whatever no it, it's um, all it's all perfectly distributed yeah it's it's, it's pretty it's impressive but again we, we've talked about this before like you got your whole life to write your first record you got your whole life to write your first script now what are you going to do with your second one um but hey I'm not going to take that away from the fact that this dude wrote a pretty incredible script, and that's why Del Toro got involved. Uh, He believed in Bayona as a director, but he believed in this script, and he believed in Bayona's vibe. Um, And then, you know, he he cited Turn of the Screw, which I think is pretty obvious. Uh, But here's the one that I didn't get, and I've seen this movie a ton. Peter Pan. Well, they they talk about Neverland and stuff. I know. I know. They talk about it. Like, I'm too old to go to Neverland. I'm never going to grow up. Look, like, in this script, he gives you, like, four to eight minutes of, like, actual story dialogue that explains the entire movie. He just spreads it out over the hour and a half that the movie is. Right. The rest of it is literally just eye candy and ambiance and tension and Kat mentioned it when she was was giving her take like you know at some point Laura does go like sort of crazy mom and this could come off as like just a crazy mom story with a ghost aspect 
But if you watch it and listen to the kid, listen to Simone talk, you get it so much deeper. He explains so much from a child's perspective that you can miss it very easily. But it's so important, not just from following the story, but also from like an emotional angle. Because we're all predisposed as adults to like hear this child speak and just be like, yeah, yeah, kid, that's cute. But if you watch the movie and really listen to Simone, he explains every single aspect of the movie before he goes missing. So you could go back and kind of translate his conversations and his imaginary friend, which turns into friends and all of that. I'm just that's what ruined it for I, me watching it a second time. Ah, uh, see, it didn't for you know, me. I, I really it, like watching I was like things. Watching it being like, mm-hmm. oh, it's it's all laid out. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed I mean, it. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed like knowing because it is so, you know, it, it really keeps you guessing the whole way. So I liked going back and being like, okay, now I know what happened exactly. And now I can. So you watched it more than once. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was really into this. It reminded me quite a bit of The Devil's Backbone, which we, uh, uh, Del Toro directed film, which we talked about on one of our lost episodes. I think that this is better than The Devil's Backbone. I think this kind of oh, takes yeah. that to like the next level. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree. This is way more fleshed out. I mean, I do. I did appreciate revisiting Devil's Backbone from a research standpoint to understand like the time and the war that it was taking place in and understanding like that aspect, which I definitely didn't the first you know time or two that I watched it. But, oh, yeah, this is way better. I mean, this is everything from the score... Um, I actually, when I was home, I found, uh, my family and I were wandering bull moose and we found, I found a two ninety nine DVD used DVD of the orphanage and just bought it. Cause I was like, it's three bucks and it says it has special features. So got back down to Memphis, popped it into the DVD player, definitely spent three bucks on like maybe a total of like 25 minutes of special features, but they were great. Like Del Toro has this amazing quote about why he took a shot on the script and on J.A. Bayona as the director. And he basically says, if I have to take a risk, I prefer to take it with someone who's never made a film than with someone who has and wasn't up to the job. And that sort of encompasses the making of this film. You know, we haven't talked about the the cast on this, but Belen Rueda plays Laura, the lead, the lead character, the mom in the movie. And she was a big deal. And then the, the actress that played Benigna, Montserrat Carula, uh, she's a big deal. I mean, the actress that plays Aurora, like he had a lot of people on this. And it's really fun watching the special features and seeing these established actors and actresses talk about how they knew nobody, not the director, nobody on the crew. They were all new. They'd only done short films and music videos. And they were like, the passion on this set was amazing. It ran like clockwork. Everything was very deliberate. Uh, it even shows you uh, the score being shot. And I think it was Bulgaria where they found the orchestra. And Jay Biona was in there every day with you know the guy that did the music. Um, all of it is just great. Um, and just really deliberate things where like you 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 get to watch the the score being done. And um, I forget his name. I apologize. Uh, that did the music. He he says. Jay told me he wanted this movie to sound like wood and go back and watch the movie with like that in mind. And it's, it's just so good. Everything from sound design to set design to the music. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm gushing over this. I know it's my pick, but I, I love this movie so much. Hot take. I liked everything except the music. Really? A little too, I thought the music was a little too majestic for me. It was majestic. a little too That's, Disney, okay. majestic, orchestrated. Like fantastical. Yeah, bit. yeah. It made it more fantastic. Like, I I thought it was, like, a little bit, like, it should have been a little grittier and, and earnest than, like, a Pan's Labyrinth or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that kind of reminded me of that, like, fantasy kind of stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, it was well done. But that's just my preference. I also would have taken off the the filter uh, the that we talked about, the sepia thing. But can we take a magnifying glass and just look at... Uh, Benigna's death scene. Oh, they actually, oh, in the special yeah. features, they cover that. It's so cool. It's the best. It's the best looking death mm. in the, the this era. I thought it was I thought so that amazing. was a, a gasping Her, moment. The slack jaw. Yeah. No, well, after. That was scary. That scared uh, the shit out of me. Like the first part is, uh, is shocking enough. And then the oh, slack yeah. jaw. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
the mouth. Yeah, no. Very good special effects. I thought it was. Yeah, and th- that was that was a mix of um, post effects and practical, and they show it like how she had like a green like ball in her mouth, Dave, mm. so that they could like go in and do VFX, um, or, or do digital effects, and then a bunch of it was like prosthetics and stuff, and the team that did it. We've talked about this movie, Dave. They also did the effects on girls with balls. Oh, nice! The volleyball horror movie. Oh, I was like, what? I mean, I thought the I thought it was a beautifully shot movie. Like, I thought the Definitely. shots were oh, yeah. very yeah, aesthetically pleasing. I think my favorite one is there's like this this shot of um, I think it's the mother just like constantly spinning and it's just like around her. Like, I think that one was my favorite. It was a it's it's it not that pleasing. I didn't like the film. It was just a fucking major bummer. <laughs> and sometimes. I don't want to be more bummed out than I already am, you know? I didn't think it was that much of a bummer. To me, it's it was a, like, I mean, It I had know. an uplifting ending, I would say, but... People got what they wanted, yeah? Well, do I, I mean, need to cry people, on the show? Do well, I need to cry on the fucking show? <laughs> well, it's the 2000s this week. We have uppers and downers. Ew. I mean, I, <laughs> oh. there's no more of a Coke movie than American Psycho. I mean, it's so. I mean, there's more Coke movies, but, but, but you know, it's pretty cokey. It's, it's very coke That's probably the most coke yeah. we've seen in a movie, and, and this, and this is, would be more your downer. Yeah, movie. your value yeah. should have gone great with this. <laughs> well, you know. Maybe you should switch to Xanax or heroin. Maybe. Uh, I also liked, uh, I miss this every time I've seen this movie. I, I always knew like there was a significance to Laura's necklace. Obviously, it comes at the very end. But I miss the fact that her husband gave that to her, like maybe halfway through the movie, when they were looking for Simone. He was still missing. It had gone on for yeah. months, I believe. But Six months, yeah. I miss the fact that it was, I think, his grandmother's St. Anthony necklace. And he gave it to her, and he like basically said, like, no, I'm just loaning this to you. When we find Simone, you give it back to me. And St. Anthony was a Portuguese priest in the 1200s, one of the most quickly canonized saints in church history. He was known as a doctor, but more importantly for the film, he was known as the patron saint for the recovery of lost items. He's credited with many miracles involving lost people, lost things, and spiritual goods. Wow, that's interesting because that was one of the coolest things to me about it. There are a number of like... um, scavenger hunt scenes the the ghosts mm-hmm. are kind of like setting mm-hmm. up these scavenger hunts and they're so good they're so well laid out and they make so much sense one thing that i was thinking while i was watching this was how would you lay this all out in your mind as a screenwriter as a filmmaker like this is so twisty and turning all of these scavenger hunt scenes all this whole overarching story like I just was impressed that somebody could keep all of this in their mind and be resolving it like somebody made this up. That was really impressive to me. I was psyched that they never went supernatural with any effects or anything the whole time. Yeah. It was like realistic. I think when this movie came out, I was like probably starving for this kind of movie that was just some scary images you know, because there's a lot of effects in this time that kind of yeah, things. It, a movie yeah. like this commonly would have some sort of black smoke appear, which is my least favorite effect ever. Yeah. Or like somebody with hair all down the front of their face and like some right. CGI stuff. There was supposed to be an American remake of this, which uh, Del Toro was overseeing also that never got off the ground. Kind of interesting to, to read about that. They had a director attached, Larry Fesden, who's done a bunch of like mm. indie horror stuff we haven't talked about, I don't think specifically, but he was supposed to direct, and he and Del Toro wrote a screenplay for an American remake of this. It was going to be a little bit different, but the same basic story, and they tried to get, they just couldn't get the actors that they wanted. They couldn't really get anyone attached, and they went at this for a couple of years, and it never really panned out, but that's still out there in the ether. It hasn't hasn't been done yet. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point it gets made, but that was interesting to look into also. No, what's crazy is, did you see the bloodydisgusting.com article? It came out, like, last week. Like, yeah, they that, literally yeah, yeah. They sat down to, with Larry yeah, Fessenden yeah, interview, and uh, talked it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I was, like, scrolling through. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, we were about to talk about this movie. And it's almost, it's, it's interesting how similar it is to the American Psycho story, where it's the same type of deal. And... Essentially, what it comes down to is that no studio thought that Fessenden was going to put asses in seats. 
And if he couldn't attract, you know, the right cast, sorry, we're just not going to make it. Uh, but again, like that's another person that I love seeing Del Toro take a shot on. Um, I, I thought it was weird that like it was immediately picked up by New Line to do an American remake. I mean, this made almost eighty million dollars in Spain. This was, it was a huge, a huge, huge international hit, or eighty yeah. million dollars worldwide at the box office. But this was huge. This beat Pan's Labyrinth for like the biggest box off office opening in Spain, and it yeah. was the top grossing Spanish film of twenty seventeen. Yeah, this was I a mean, very this big was deal. Del Toro yeah. at his peak, where he could put his name on anything. And it was going to be big, but I mean, it's worth it. I mean, I think this movie should have made a lot more money. I don't need an American. I would honestly, this may be a little extreme, but I would say I need an American remake of The Orphanage about as much as I needed the American remake of Martyrs. Uh, what about like if like Kate Winslet was the main character? You know, like they could. If I want to watch well, an American, I mean, if I want to watch an American version of The Orphanage, I'll watch the others with Nicole Kidman. Ooh, good point. Yeah. This is a rental uh, right now, too. You can rent this pretty much anywhere. It's not on any of the memberships yet, but I'm sure it's on and off most of them. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, you can watch it if you have the stars add-on on Prime right now. 